Section three of Just Sixteen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Dorr. Just Sixteen by Susan Coolidge. A Little Night of Labor. Part three. So the summer came and went, and Georgie with it, keeping steadily on at her daily task. All that she found to do she did as thoroughly and as carefully as she knew how. She was of real use, and she knew it. Her work had value. It was not imaginary work, invented as a pretext for giving her help, and the fact supported her self-respect. We are told in one of our Lord's most subtly beautiful parables that to them who make perfect use of their one talent, other talents shall be added also. Many faithful workers have proved the meaning and the truth of the parable, and Georgie Talcott found it now among the rest. With the coming in of the autumn, another sphere of activity was suddenly opened to her. It sprang, as good things often do, from a seeming disappointment. She was drawing on her gloves one morning at the close of her labors, when a message was brought by the discreet English butler. Mrs. Parrish says, Miss, will you be so good as to step up to her morning room before you go? certainly frederick and georgie turned and ran lightly upstairs mrs parrish was sitting at her writing-table with rather a preoccupied face i've sent for you miss talcott because i wanted to mention that we are going abroad for the winter she began maud isn't well the doctors recommend the riviera so we have decided rather suddenly on our plans and are to sail on the scythia the first of november we shall be gone a year dear me thought georgie there's another of my places lost it is quite dreadful she was conscious of a sharp pang of inward disappointment my cousin mrs ernest stockton is to take my place continued mrs parrish her husband has been in the legation at paris you know for the last six years but now they are coming back for good and when i telegraphed her of our decision she at once cabled to secure this house they will land the week after we sail and i suppose will want to come up at once now, of course, all sorts of things have got to be done to make ready for them, but it's out of the question that I should do them, for what with packing and the children's dressmaking and appointments at the dentist's and all, that my hands are so full that I could not possibly undertake anything else. So I was thinking of you. You have so much head and system, you know, and I could trust you as I could not any stranger, and you know the house so well, and you could get plenty of people to help, so that it need not be burdensome. There will be some things to be packed away, and the whole place to be cleaned, floors waxed and curtains washed, the Duchess dressing-tables taken to pieces and done up and fluted. All that sort of thing, you know. Oh, and there would be an inventory to make, too. I forgot that. Then next year I should want it gone over again in the same way. The articles that are packed, taken out, and put into place, and so on, that it may look natural when we come home. My idea would be to move the family down to New York on the 15th, so as to give you a clear fortnight and just come up for one day before we sail for a final look of course i should leave the keys in your charge and i should want you to take the whole responsibility now will you do it and just tell me what you will ask for it all may i think it over for one night said prudent georgie i will come to-morrow morning with my answer she thought it over carefully and seemed to see that here was a new vista of remunerative labor open to her of a more permanent character than mere dusting so she signified to mrs parrish that she would undertake the job and having done so bent her mind to doing it in the best possible manner she made careful lists and personally superintended each detail 
Miss Sally recommended trustworthy workpeople, and everything was carried out to the full satisfaction of Mrs. Parrish, who could not say enough in praise of Georgie and her methods. "'It robs going to Europe of half its terrors to have such a person to turn to,' she told her friends. "'That little Miss Talcott is really wonderful, so clear-headed and exact. "'It's really extraordinary where she learned it all, such a girl as she is. "'If any of you are going abroad, you'll find her the greatest comfort possible.' These recommendations bore fruit. People in Sandyport were always setting forth for this part of the world or that, and leaving houses behind them. A second job of the same sort was soon urged upon Georgie, followed by a third and a fourth. It was profitable work, for she had fifty dollars in each case, a hundred for her double job at the Algernon Parishes, so her year's expenses were assured, and she was not sorry when another of her dusting families went to Florida for the winter. It became the fashion in Sandyport to employ little Miss Talcott. Her capabilities once discovered, people were quick in finding out ways in which to utilize them. Mrs. Robert Brown had the sudden happy thought of getting Georgie to arrange the flowers for a ball which she was giving. Georgie loved flowers, and had that knack of making them look charming in vases, which is the gift of a favored few. The ball decorations were admired and commented upon. People said it was so clever of Mrs. Brown, and so much better than stiff things from the florists, and presently half a dozen other ladies wanted the same thing done for them. Fashion and cheap always follow any leader who is venturesome enough to try a new fence. Later, Mrs. Horace Brown, with her cards out for a great lawn party, had the misfortune to sprain her ankle. In this emergency, she bethought herself of Georgie, who thereupon proved so invaluable as a dia ex machina behind the scenes that thenceforward mrs brown never felt that she could give any sort of entertainment without her help engagements thickened and georgie's hands became so full that she laughingly threatened to take a partner that's just what i always wanted you to do said mrs st john a real nice one with heaps of money who would take you about everywhere and give you a good time oh that's not at all the sort i want protested georgie laughing and blushing i mean a real business partner a fellow sweeperess, a house arranger, a ball supper manageress. Wretched girl, how horribly practical you are. I wish I could see you discontented and sentimental just for once. Heaven forbid, that would be a pretty state of things. Now good-bye. I have about a half-ton of roses to arrange for Mrs. Loriston. Oh, for her dance, Georgie. Coaxingly, why not go for once with me? Come just this once. There's that white dress of mine from Pingat, with the point de veni sleeves that would exactly fit you. Nonsense, replied Georgie briefly. She kissed her friend and hurried away. I declare, soliloquized Mrs. St. John, looking after her, I could find it in my heart to advertise for someone to come and rescue Georgie Talcott from all this hard work. What nice old times those were when you had only to get up a tournament and blow a trumpet or two, and have true knights flock in from all points of the compass in aid of distressed damsels. I wish such things were in fashion now. I would buy a trumpet this very day, I vow, and have a tournament next week. Georgie's true knight, as it happened, was to come from a quarter little suspected by Mrs. St. John. For the spare afternoon of this second winter, Georgie had reserved rather a large piece of work, which had the advantage that it could be taken up at will and laid down when convenient. This was the cataloguing of a valuable library belonging to Mr. Constant Carrington. That gentleman had observed Georgie rather closely as she went about her various avocations, and had formed so high an opinion of what he was pleased to term her executive ability. 
that he made a high bid for her services in preference to those of anyone else. She was sitting in this library one rainy day in January, beside a big packing-case with a long row of books on the table, which she was dusting, classifying, and noting on the list in her lap, when the door opened and a tall young man came in. Georgie glanced at him vaguely, as at a stranger. Then, recognizing an old friend, she jumped up, exclaiming, "'Why, Bob! Mr. Curtis! How do you do? I had no idea that you were here!' Bob Curtis looked bewildered. He had reached Sandyport only that morning. No one had chanced to mention Georgie, or the change in her fortunes, and for a moment he failed to recognize in the white-aproned, dusty-fingered vision before him the girl whom he had known so well five years previously. "'It is? Why, it is!' he exclaimed. "'Miss Georgie, how delighted I am to see you! I was coming down to call as soon as I could find out where you were. My aunt said nothing about your being in the house. Very likely she did not know. I am in and out so often here that I do not always see Mrs. Carrington.' "'Indeed!' Bob looked more puzzled than ever. He had not remembered that there was any such close intimacy in the old days between the two families. "'I can't shake hands. I'm too dusty,' went on Georgie, "'but I am very glad indeed to see you again.' She, too, was taking mental notes, and observing that her former friend had lost somewhat of the gloss and brilliance of his boyish days, that his coat was not of the last cut, and that his expression was spiritless, not to say discontented. "'Poor fellow,' she thought. "'What on earth does it all mean?' meditated Bob on his part. "'These books only came yesterday,' said Georgie, indicating the big box with a wave of the hand. "'I've had to dust them all, and I find that Italian dust sticks just as the American variety does, and makes the fingers just as black. What are you doing, if I may be so bold as to ask?' "'Cataloguing your uncle's library. He has been buying quantities of books for the last two years, as perhaps you know.' He has a man in Germany, and another in Paris, and another in London, who purchase for him, and the boxes are coming over almost every week now. A great caseful of the English ones arrived last Saturday. Such beauties! Look at that Ruskin behind you! It is the first edition, with all the plates, worth its weight in gold. It's awfully good of you to take so much trouble, I'm sure, remarked Mr. Curtis politely, still with the same mystified look. Not at all, replied Georgie coolly. It's all in my line of business, you know. Mr. Carrington is to give me a hundred dollars for the job, which is excellent pay, because I can take my own time for doing it, and work at odd moments. Her interlocutor looked more perplexed than ever. A distinct embarrassment became visible in his manner at the words job and pay. Certainly, he said. Then, coloring a little, he frankly went on, I don't understand a bit. Would you mind telling me what it all means? "'Oh, you haven't happened to hear of my befallments, as Mrs. Sally Scannell would call them.' "'I did hear of your mother's death,' said Bob gently, and I was truly sorry. She was so kind to me always in the old days.' "'She was kind to everybody. I'm glad you were sorry,' said Georgie, bright tears in the eyes, which she turned with a grateful look on Bob. "'Well, that was the beginning of it all.' There was another pause, during which Bob pulled his moustache nervously. Then he drew a chair to the table and sat down. "'Can you talk while you're working?' he asked. "'And mayn't I help? "'It seems as though I might at least lift those books out for you. "'Now, if you don't mind, if it isn't painful, "'won't you tell me what has happened to you? "'For I see that something has happened. "'A great deal has happened, but it isn't painful to tell about it. "'Things were puzzling at first, but they have turned out wonderfully, "'and I'm rather proud of the way they have gone.' 
so little by little with occasional interruptions for lifting out books and jotting down titles she told her story one from point to point by the eager interest which her companion showed in the narrative when she had finished he brought his hand down heavily on the table i'll tell you what he exclaimed with vigorous emphasis it's most extraordinary that a girl should do as you have done you're an absolute little brick if you'll excuse the phrase but it makes a fellow it makes me more ashamed of myself than i've often been in my life before but why why should you be ashamed oh i've been having hard times too explained bob gloomily but i haven't been so plucky as you i've minded them more georgie knew vaguely something of these hard times in the old days five years before when she was seventeen and he a harvard junior of twenty spending a long vacation with his uncle and when they had rowed and danced and played tennis together so constantly as to set people to wondering if anything serious was likely to arise from the intimacy the world with all its opportunities and pleasures seemed open to the heir of the curtis family bob's father was rich the family influential there seemed nothing that he might not command at will then all was changed suddenly a great financial panic swept away the family fortunes in a few weeks mr curtis died insolvent and robert was called on to give up many half-formed wishes and ambitions and face the stern realities what little could be saved from the wreck made a scanty subsistence for his mother and sisters he must support himself for more than two years he had been filling a subordinate position in a large manufacturing business his friends considered him in luck to secure such a place and he was fain to agree with them but the acknowledgment did not make him exactly happy in it notwithstanding discipline can hardly be agreeable bob curtis had been a little spoiled by prosperity and though he did his work fairly well there was always bitterness at heart and a certain tinge of false shame at having it to do at all he worked because he must he told himself not because he liked or ever should like it all the family traditions were opposed to work then he had the natural confidence of a very young man in his own powers and it was not pleasant to be made to feel at every turn that he was raw inexperienced not particularly valuable to anybody and that no one especially looked up to or admired him he scorned himself for minding such things but all the same he did mind them and the frank kindly young fellow was in danger of becoming soured and cynical in his lonely and uncongenial surroundings it was just at this point that good fortune brought him into contact with georgie talcott and it was like the lifting of a veil from before his eyes he recollected her such a pretty carefree creature petted and adored by her mother every day filled with pleasant things not a worry or cloud allowed to shadow the bright succession of her amusements and here she sat telling him of a fight with necessity compared with which his seemed like child's play and out of which she had come victorious he was struck too with the total absence of embarrassment and false shame in the telling work in georgie's mind was evidently a thing to be proud of and thankful over not something to be practised shyly and alluded to with bated breath the contrast between his and her way of looking at the thing struck him sharply it did not take long for georgie to arrive at the facts in bob's case confidence begets confidence and in another day or two won by her bright sympathy he gradually made a clean breast of his troubles somehow they did not seem so great after they were told georgie's sympathy was not of a weakening sort and her questions and comments seemed to clear things to his mind and set them in right relations to each other i don't think that i pity you much she told him one day 
"'Your mother and the girls, yes, because they are women and not used to it, "'and it always is harder for girls.' "'See here, you're a girl yourself,' put in Bob. "'No, I'm a business person. Don't interrupt. "'What I was going to say was that I think it's lovely for a young man to have to work. "'We are all lazy by nature. "'We need to be shaken up and compelled to do our best. "'You will be ten times as much of a person in the end "'as if you had always had your own way.' "'Do you really think that? "'But what's the use of talking? "'I may stick where I am for years "'and never do more than just make a living.' "'I wouldn't,' said Georgie, "'throwing back her pretty head with an air of decision. "'I should scorn to stick if I were a man, "'and I don't believe you will either. "'If you once go into it heartily "'and put your will into it, "'you're sure to succeed. "'I always considered you clever, you know. "'You'll go up, up, as sure as, as sure as dust.' That's the thing of all the world that's most certain to rise, I think. Overmastered with a clod of valiant marl, muttered Robert below his breath, then aloud, Well, if that's the view you take of it, I'll do my best to prove you right. It's worth a good deal to know that there is somebody who expects something of me. I expect everything of you, said Georgie confidently, and Bob went back to his post at the end of the fortnight, infinitely cheered and heartened. "'Bless her brave little heart,' he said to himself. "'I won't disappoint her if I can help it, "'or if I must, I'll know the reason why. "'It is curious, and perhaps a little humiliating, "'to realize how much our lives are affected "'by what may be called accident. "'A touch here or there, a little pull up or down to set us going, "'often determines the direction in which we go, "'and direction means all. Robert Curtis, in after times, always dated the beginning of his fortunes from the day when he walked into his uncle's library and found Georgie Talcott cataloguing books. It set me to making a man of myself, he used to say. Georgie did not see him for more than a year after his departure, but he wrote twice to say that he had taken her advice, and it had worked, and he had got a rise. The truth was that the boy had an undeveloped capacity for affairs inherited from the able old grandfather who laid the foundations of the fortune which Bob's father muddled away. When once will and energy were roused and brought into play, this hereditary bent asserted itself. Bob became valuable to his employers, and, like Georgie's dust, began to go up in the business scale. Georgie had just successfully re-established the Algernon parishes, who arrived five months later than was expected in their home when Bob came up for a second visit to his uncle. This time he had three weeks' leave, and it was just before he went back that he proposed the formation of what he was pleased to call a labor union. "'You see, I'm a working man now, just as you are a working woman,' he explained. "'It's our plain duty to cooperate. You shall be grand master, or rather mistress, and I'll be some sort of a subordinate, a walking delegate, perhaps. Indeed, you shall be nothing of the sort. Walking delegates are particularly idle people, I've always heard.' They just go about ordering other folks to stop work and do nothing. Then I won't be one. I'll be Grandmaster's mate. There's no such office in labor unions. If we have one at all, you must have the first place in it. What is that position? Please describe it in full. Whatever happens, I won't strike. Oh, said Georgie, with the prettiest blush in the world, the position is too intricate for explanation. We won't describe it. But will you join the union? I thought we had joined already both of us. Now, Georgie, dearest, I'm in earnest. Thanks to you, I know what work means and how good it is, and now I want my reward, which is to work beside you always as long as I live. 
don't turn away your head, but tell me that I may. I cannot tell you exactly what was Georgie's answer, for this conversation took place on the beach, and just then they sat down on the edge of a boat and began to talk in such low tones that no one could overhear. But as they sat a long time, and she went home leaning contentedly on Bob's arm, I presume she answered as he wished. He went back to his work soon afterward, and has made his way up very fast since. Next spring the firm with which he is connected proposed to send him to Chicago to start a new branch of their business there. He is to have a good salary and a share of the profits, and it is understood that Georgie will go with him. She has kept on steadily at her voracious avocations, has made herself so increasingly useful that all Sandyport wonders what it shall do without her when she goes away, and has laid up what Miss Sally calls a tidy bit of money toward the furnishing of the home which she and Bob hope to have before long. Mrs. St. John has many plans in mind for the wedding, and though Georgie laughingly protests that she means to be married in a white apron with a wreath of dusty miller round her head, I dare say she will give in when the time comes and consent to let her little occasion be made pretty. Even a girl who works likes to have her marriage day a bright one. Cousin Vi, for her part, is dimly reaching out toward a reconciliation. For be it known, work which brings success, and is proved to have a solid money value of its own, loses in the estimation of the fastidious its degrading qualities, and is spoken of by the more euphonious title of good fortune. It is only work which doesn't succeed, which remains forever disrespectable. I think I may venture to predict that the time will come when Cousin Vi will condone all Georgie's wrongdoings, and extend not the olive branch only, but both hands, to the courtesies, that is, if they turn out as prosperous as their friends predict and expect them to be. But whatever fate may have in store for my dear little Georgie and her chosen co-worker, of one thing I am sure, that fair as they may with worldly fortune, they will never be content, having tasted of the salt of work, to feed again on the honey-bread of idleness, or become drones in the working hive, but will persevere to the end in the principles and practices of what in the best sense of the word may be called their labor union. End of A Little Night of Labor, Part 3